see the promised land. Ooh. One day there'll be no more lives taken too soon. One day there'll be no more need for a hospital room. One day every tear that falls will be wiped by his hand. We will see the promised land. song. Thank you so much, Praise Team. We want to welcome to East Hills of Baptist Church, whether you're watching on live stream or you're here in person, and I know we still have a few families that still meet in the parking lot. I want to thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to ask you to stand with us and welcome one another to East Hills of Baptist Church. Do not leave your seat, though. Just wave at people or fist bump them, but welcome to East Hills of Baptist Church this morning. Bulletin. We have a baby dedication service this morning, and we have Miss Miss Everly Senior here with us this morning. She's not beautiful, and I want to thank Justin and Courtney for being here. I want to thank you guys for serving on staff. Uh, Courtney's not actually officially on staff, but she works real, really hard here. Appreciate your work ethic. 
And uh, love you both. Thank you both. And what they're going to do today is this. this. This baby dedication service is not for salvation, of course. Talked about that last week. No works can, can impart faith to anybody. But what they're doing today is very important. They're making a covenant or a commitment before their church family, their family and friends, and before the Lord that to the best of their ability, they're going to raise this young girl up to know Jesus. And then as a church, we're going to make a commitment today too. We're going to say that we as a church will help her come to know Jesus as well. And we'll love them, we'll pray for them, and we will be there to support them during this because it takes a church to raise a child, does it not, oftentimes? But listen to what the Bible says in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on their children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. What a great challenge to parents today. So in presenting Everly to the Lord, do you promise through God's grace and the help of the church to teach her the truths of the Christian faith? Do you also promise through prayer, word, and example to bring Everly up in the nurture, discipline, instruction of the Lord? If so, would you respond by saying we do? In church, I'll ask you a question as well that we ask at every baby dedication service. Do you promise to provide spiritual instruction for Everly? by giving of your time, talent, and resources to help her come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And do you promise to pray for Justin and Courtney as they seek to raise Everly in the fear and admonition of the Lord? If so, would you respond by saying we do? Well, there's several things before we pray that we want to give you this morning. The first one is this baby certificate here that just recognizes this day. We also have the book called The Lamb, which we give to... Uh, at every baby dedication service, it probably gives the clearest explanation of the gospel. It, it's not age-graded. Um, I would encourage you to get this and go through it with your children. If you're an adult and you just don't understand the gospel as well, uh, this is an excellent book. We also have a Bible that we're going to give to her, a little pink Bible. There you go. She wants it. Uh, we have a shirt also, East Hillsville Baptist Church uh, student ministry shirt that we're going to give you. And then finally, this is a letter that I've written to Everly. Uh, it says, Everly, Virginia, Senior. And this is for her eyes only. This is for the day that she asked Lord to save her, whether she's six years old or 26 years old. This is her letter. And it talks about this day. It talks about how her parents loved her enough to dedicate her. It talks about how we as a church prayed for her. And well, what are we praying for? We're praying for her salvation. So this is her letter. And now let's pray for Miss Everly. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you in prayer, we just want to thank you for this child, Lord. She is a gift. And, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for her birth. And now, Father, we pray for her rebirth. Father, we pray that you'd save her at an early age. And, Father, use her life for your glory. I pray that your kingdom would be expanded because of her salvation. Father, I want to thank you for Justin and Courtney. I pray that you'd bless their marriage. I pray that you'd help them as they seek to raise her in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And, Father, I pray that this day, these prayers this day, would be the start of her salvation, Father. In Jesus' name I pray and all of God's people said together. Amen. Well, God bless. Let's give the Lord a hand clap prayer. Thank you.
Good morning. I hope things are well with you. In the, in the Old Testament, in Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord says this, The Lord is good. Is He not good? No matter what we face and go through in life, He's good. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Have we not been in difficulty for the last several months with COVID? He's our stronghold. He's a place to run to. He's our refuge. The last part of this verse, he says, and he knows those who trust him. Would you just trust him this morning? Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning, we want to thank you that you're good to us. Lord, no matter how we've been, you've been good. God, you've been gracious, you've been merciful, you've been kind. And Father, we want to thank you that you've been good to us this morning. And God, this morning, we want to thank you that you're our stronghold. That God, that we can run to you as a child with open arms. And you embrace us with your grace and with your mercy. And God, we want to thank you that you're with us today. And Father... We trust you this morning. We cast all our care on you this morning. And, Father, we pray this morning that, Lord, that you bring healing to the church and healing to the nation and healing to the world that we live in. Father, we need you this morning. Father, we need your goodness. We need your mercy. And, Father, we need you as our refuge this morning. And, Father, we ask that you come and renew and revive us as your people. Father, you're the only hope that we have. And Father, we trust you to do that. We call on you this morning to do that. We pray that you would help us to be more like you and less like us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Maybe.
Thank you, praise team. As they're going down, I'm going to invite you to find Romans chapter 8 as we finish our, not finish, but as we continue our study in this great chapter. And I'll, I'll start out about each, each and every one of these messages saying that the Bible's been called the greatest book, Romans has been called the greatest letter, and many scholars say that Romans chapter 8 has been called the greatest um, chapter in all the Bible. But that's up for debate, but I hope you've been blessed by this, these series of messages. This morning we're going to talk about this thought, secure. Do you doubt or have you ever doubted your salvation? If you're born again, you don't have to. When I was a young Christian, I doubted my salvation quite often. Usually it was because of preaching. A preacher would come in and he would preach, whether he meant to or not, in my opinion, he preached a doubt message. Almost preached perfection and I always doubt mine. And another thing for me was this. I thought, this is almost too good to be true. Now I was a thinker. When I was a teenager, probably, people probably didn't realize that, but I, I thought everything, reasoned everything out. And I thought, I prayed a prayer, and I have a relationship with God. How does that happen? How does that happen that I, that I have, I, I place my faith in Jesus, and then I have all these benefits of just being saved, and the primary one was knowing Him, was having a relationship with Him. Well, these two verses this morning should give you incredible confidence in your salvation because it's all that God does. He does this. He does that. He does this. Okay? And it should give you uh, an incredible peace when you leave this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, if you'll stand with me. And I'll start out in verse 28 that we looked at two weeks ago. And the Apostle Paul says this. Remind you, he's writing to the church at Rome. He's talking about the context of chapter 8 is there's no condemnation for any of us. He talks about how some of you are going to suffer And then he says this, he's trying to encourage them. Well, we know that all things work together for good. Notice, as we talked about two weeks ago, not all things are good, but God can work all things together for good. To those who love God, which is exclusive here, he says, "This this verse is only for my children. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we talked about how God has a plan and purpose for all of us. And then verse 29, he gives us this incredible uh, security says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what he predestined us to, to be conformed into the image of his son, that he, talking about Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, those he also justified. He talks about justification again. 
and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for these five things that happen that give us security. And Father, they can be debated or they can be surrendered to. And Father, I pray this morning that we would just surrender to the awesome fact that, Lord, you saved us. You keep us saved. And Lord, that our salvation is not based on our performance. Our salvation is not based on our personality. Father, our salvation is based on the goodness of God alone. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Stephen Lawson said this, Assurance of salvation comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 of chapter 8 tells us that. It does not come from a man, a church, a new member's class, an evangelist, or a pastor. It comes from the Holy Spirit. He takes ownership of your assurance. He is the one who convicted, drew, regenerated, granted repentance and saving faith, sealed you in Christ, and has come to indwell you. He is not going to give up the task of assurance to someone else. The Holy Spirit will finish the work and bring it to completion. He guarantees our eternal security all the way to heaven. Why do people doubt? Sometimes people have a low sense of self-esteem. Sometimes it's a personality issue. Sometimes they grow up in a church and they just hear bad preaching. There are some denominations that believe you can lose your salvation. Okay, But notice what verse 16 says. It says the Spirit himself testifies or witnesses with our spirit that we're children of God. Over time in your being conformed in the image of Jesus, the Holy Spirit over and over again is just going to testify you're God's for eternity. You're God's for eternity you're God's for eternity. You're God's for eternity. Okay? You are His. He is yours. You are His. And that's what the, the chapter is trying to get the message across. These verses constitute the most powerful, most clear of all scriptural statements in regard to our security. Our security is not wrapped in our ability to stay saved, but in God's ability to keep His own word to Himself. So I hope you leave here today saved, if you're not, and secure if you are. Okay, the first thing you should know is that you, if you're God's child, you are loved by God. Look at those, look at those words up there. Don't overlook that. Now, I was 20 years old when the Lord saved me. If you'll go back to that first point there, Michael. I was 20 years old when the Lord saved me. That night when I went home, the man who led me to the Lord said to pray. And I prayed and I was so overwhelmed that God knew me, God heard me, and that God loved me. The God of the universe. I'm not talking about my baseball coach. I'm not talking about my dad or my grandpa. I'm talking about God. And if you're saved today, you are loved. Notice the verse. For whom, if you'll show the verse up on the screen, for whom he foreknew. Notice the word foreknew. That's a word that's been debated a lot if you're a Bible nerd like I am. Everybody debates it. It has three basic meanings in Scripture. Well, look at the first one. It comes from the word for and new. Gnosis and before, before knowledge, know before. Does God know things before? God knows everything. He's omniscient. God knows all things at once. Listen to these thoughts. It means to see in advance. God knows all things at once. He sees all things at once. There's no past, present, or future with God. God is. That's why when Moses said, who do I tell favor you are? He says, you tell him I am that I am. God just is. He is. He knows all things at once. Acts 15 says this. Some things are known unto God. No, Acts 15, chapter, or chapter 15, verse 18 says, Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. God knows every detail with regards to history, past, present, and future. There's nothing about the future that God does not know. Does God foresee our faith? Yes, you know why? Because faith is a gift granted by 
God. It also means to ordain beforehand. God ordains certain things beforehand and they're going to happen. God's plan is going to happen. You cannot thwart God's plan. The crucifixion of Jesus was ordained beforehand. Peter, preaching in Acts 2, said this, Christ, concerning the crucifixion of Jesus, this Jesus delivered up, which means he was handed over by someone else. Who handed him over? God handed him over. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, preordained, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God says, God preordained it, but you did it. All right? God worked within your own bad desires and wants, and it was preordained that Jesus Christ be crucified. It was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It becomes in a predecided course of action. God planned the death of Christ by his foreknowledge. Peter says this in 1 Peter 20. He teaches that Christ the Lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. How does God predetermine something, but people have free will? Warren Wiersbe said this, coming in on Judas, because that was, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus told him, one of you will betray me, but Jesus, Judas did it of his own volition. Warren Wiersbe said this, coming in on Judas' betrayal of our Lord Wiersbe says that before he chose the, his 12 apostles, Jesus spent a whole night in prayer. So we must believe that it was the Father's will that Judas be among the twelve. But the selection of Judas did not seal his fate. Rather, it gave him opportunity to watch the Lord closely, believe and be saved. God in his sovereignty had determined that his son would be betrayed by a friend, but divine foreknowledge does not destroy human responsibility or accountability. Judas made each decision freely and would be judged accordingly, even though he still fulfilled the decree of God. Boom. So there, in Judas's life, you see known before and ordained before. And then when we come to chapter 29, you see all three of these. Know before, ordained before, love before. Notice, those for whom God foreknew. That could be the word for love because God is not knowing actions or events. He's knowing people. It's not what he foreknew, but whom. And any time God foreknows a person, it involves his love for that person. It implies a predetermined love relationship. John three sixteen. for God so loved the what? The world. That word world means the unredeemed, those who are in rebellion against God. So God loves the world, but he also loves his church. In the Bible, to foreknow means to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. The word know is the key. The word know is used so many times in scriptures in so many ways and is often used of a love relationship all the way back to Genesis. Listen to this. Adam knew his wife Eve, same word, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, does that mean that he knew of her? Does that mean they introduced themselves? Hey, I'm Adam. My favorite color is Carolina blue, like all Christians. I love, I love to eat steak. What's your name? My name is Eve. I like pink. I love feeding giraffes. Wow, there's a baby. Is that what that means? Where'd that baby come from? Adam intimately knew his wife, Eve, and they produced a child. I don't think we have to go into a great description of that. Our student pastor's here after church. If you need any help with that, he'll help you. All right? To love, to love. Listen to this. Joseph was surprised when Mary was pregnant because the Bible says this. He had never known her. He had never known her. Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. 
In Amos 2, God says this, talking about all the nations of the world. Israel only have I known. Now, God knows all the nations, right? But he says, Israel I have known intimately. And then in Hosea 13, 5, God says this, I knew you, knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. I knew you. I loved you. Paul writes in uh, Romans eleven two. you can turn over there if you want to, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, foreloved. God, speaking through Moses, told the nation of Israel, I didn't choose you because you were better. I didn't choose you because you were prettier. I chose you because I chose you to set my love upon you. Israel was no better than the Philistines. The only difference was their God was different. Okay? For love. What I want you to understand this is that, and we can debate it all day, words mean matter. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, talking about false con- conversions. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not teach, preach, cast out demons? And Jesus will say this, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never, what? Knew you. I never knew you. John the Apostle says this in his 90s, after the Isle of Patmos. Man's got wisdom, right? He writes First John. I bet you every, especially every Jewish Christian, read that letter like, man, John, you've changed so much. John says this, we love him because he first loved us. Do you realize that? You are loved. How did this play out for me? I, it was about a month after 9-11. I'm talking about 2001, 9-11. All right. I'd never flown in a plane in my life. I don't even like being a passenger in a car. And I'm getting on this plane. And I remember the pilots were there because it was a little plane. And he said, are y'all having a good day? I said, it doesn't matter. I hope you have a good day. I hope you have the best day of your life. I hope you have a great day. Okay? I hope it's the best flight of your life. And I remember those guys that were with me, they had all flown before. I mean, we take off. You hear that metal creaking. And I'm like, I'm not driving this thing. I'm not driving. I'm out of control. And then we get up, and then you finally get smooth, right? And I had a window seat. And I'm here looking out my window, down at the earth. You see, it's amazing how the land is. It's just amazing. And I remember this thought came to my mind. Out of all these people on this planet, God loved me. He loved me. And that gave me such peace. Now, you can debate it all you want to. I don't care. I've done it. I'm about tired of it. Or you can just surrender to it and say, i got an awesome God who loved me before the foundation of the world. For whom he foreknew, what did he do next? Notice the second one. For those whom he loved, he predestined. This word means to predetermine something. That's going to happen. It's predetermined. But what's predetermined here? Let's just look at this word. Notice what the Bible says. He also predestined. He also predestined. Look at the word. Here in Romans, I'm going to read a quote. Paul is saying that God has predetermined the destiny or the future of each believer. It's a glorious future in which he or she will be like Christ. That's all he's predestined here. You, if God says, if I save you, if I love you, your destiny is to be like Jesus. Isn't that great? I take personal responsibility in your life to make you like Jesus. It's been predetermined. We're all going to grow at different rates, aren't we? We're all going to grow a different way. We're all different. Intellectually, we're all different. Our pasts are all different. I struggle with things you don't struggle with. That I'll struggle with the rest of my life. You're not going to, okay? We're all going to have seasons up. This is not talking about perfection, but a general direction. If God saves you, it's like I said a few weeks ago. If you are what you were, you ain't, right? 
God has predetermined that you be conformed in the image of the Son. It's going to happen if God saved you. If God is the author of your salvation, according to this word, His word, you will be eventually conformed. Perfect? No. That general direction of your life is going to change. Your behavior will change over time. Your, your emotions will change over time. I've seen God take some of the meanest men, some of the meanest, and make them some of the best men this county's ever seen. Who does that? God. Only He can do it. God changes people intellectually. Hey, listen, I was a decent student. I was a decent student in high school. I was on a scholars program, but when God saved me, God just changed all that. God just, God just changes us intellectually and spiritually speaking. Think about this. I don't know how many Bibles I had in my home before the Lord saved me. I never read them, ever. I tried and just couldn't get it. But after the Lord saved me, it became my best friend. Isn't that amazing? I was a Cliff Notes reader. Aren't you thankful for Cliff Notes? Just go ahead in your, under your breath and say amen, because we all go there, right? But after God saved me, I started buying books after books after books after books after books. I was telling somebody when Chuck Swindoll would write a, a commentary or a book on David, those books are awesome, David, Moses, Paul. I would read who he read after and buy those books. That's just how messed up I was. Why? Because God saved me, and he changed me. It's his doing. I just try every day to surrender to it. Every day, think about it. The word predestined. Listen to this quote. God is saying, Paul is saying that God has predetermined the destiny or the future of each believer. It's a glorious future that will be like Christ. And so we see that predestination need not be a frightful word for the believer, but in fact a wonderful doctrine which should bring comfort, encouragement, thankfulness to our heart. God is in control. He has a plan for your life and mine. Scripture never, never, uses predestination to mean that God has predestined certain people to eternal condemnation. A person is condemned because he or she refuses to trust Christ. Stated another way, the truth of predestination applies only to saved people. Never does it apply to lost people. The Bible says you've been predestined to adoption and to an inheritance in other places. All these things are good things for God's people. It's been predetermined. Peter explains the heart of God. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some... Count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why do we have predestination? Ephesians 1 says this. It's for the praise of His glory. It's really the word to predestine, to predetermine. God used it in Acts 4.28 when He said this, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the nations and the people of Israel gathered together to do whatever your hand and your counsel predestined to be done. That's what Peter's saying, talking about God. But what are we predestined to? Look at the word conformed. It means to resemble his son, to be like the form with the image of his son. If you're not being conformed to the image of God's son, showing a greater and greater likeness to Jesus, you need to have a sober conversation with yourself. You remember when Paul wrote 1 and 2 Corinthians, that church was a mess? But you've got to understand what they came out of. These are A lot of them were Gentile people who had never heard the gospel, didn't know the Old Testament or knew. They're probably like me when I got saved. I didn't know what an Old and a New Testament was. I couldn't even read a hymn book. I didn't know what it was. And you have these people with all these issues. You don't have a lot of Christians in Corinth. And they're just doing the things they've always done. And then Paul comes in and he writes these letters. You've got to stop doing this. You've got to stop doing that. You need to do this. You need to do this. And then I think by the second letter, he finally says this. Listen, some of y'all, some of y'all in here, some of y'all, you need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Why would he say that? 
Because from day one of your salvation, you hadn't changed a bit. There's nothing. When Paul wrote to the writer, wrote to Hebrews, wrote Hebrews, he says this. Some of you ought to be eating meat by now, but you're still drinking milk. Now think about this. When he says drinking milk, what do you think he was talking about? Now our first child, we, we fed with formula. Our other two, we didn't. Okay? There comes a time when you stop doing that, right? If you're still doing that at 21 or 40, it's kind of weird. Okay? Spiritually speaking, you know what Paul's saying? Some of y'all are 40 years into the faith, and you're still drinking milk, and that's weird. He says, he says, you need to apply yourself a little bit here. Be conformed into, notice the word image. That's almost like a statue. Paul says, God's goal for your life is to change you. It's been predetermined that you will be changed into the image of his son. And then the third thing is this. Not only are you loved or you've been predetermined, predestined, but you've also been called. You have been called, past tense. Notice, notice the Bible verse. He says this, moreover, whom he predestined, everybody he predetermined that way, he called. Now, we have this call, okay? I look at the call to salvation like my call to ministry. I ran from ministry for a long time, under conviction, really bad. I was part-time as a, as a student pastor, and God was blessing. I had a good job. I enjoyed my job at Taylor King Furniture. I enjoyed it. I didn't, didn't despise it, didn't hate it, made good money. My, my, my goal when I went in was show me the money, all right? And also, I had an opportunity to witness to a bunch of people. I saw a lot of people come to know Jesus there. Was a student pastor. God was blessing that ministry. But God was calling me to something else. My mama sure didn't do it. My preacher sure didn't do it. It was something outside of me that was saying, you're not doing what you should be doing. And I remember sitting down with a preacher, and he was trying to convince me that God was calling me into the ministry. And I was trying to convince him that I wasn't, even though I knew I was. And he said this. I want to read Romans eleven twenty nine 29 to you. And this right here is what stuck it for me. He said, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He says, the, he, says, he says, the things that you're dealing with now internally, he says, that's never going away because God has called you and God's not going to stop calling you because you're to be in the ministry. I surrendered to the ministry not long after that. Quit my job and just said, Lord, I'm yours. Now, in the same way, that word is used for salvation. You have this general call where Jesus went out and he said he would walk into a village and say, repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come. Come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And then some people accept it, and some people reject it. Stephen, before he was stoned, he said, you, you Jewish leaders, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He called them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You remember when you resisted? You remember when God called you? There's also this call that's for you, personally. See, I really remember God dealing with my heart. The first Sunday I went to church when I was 20, pastor preached, and I just assumed that my family members, or my girlfriend at times, family members, told the preacher all about me. I just did. I said, I can't believe they share this with this man. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I am lost. See, that word convict means you're caused to see. And for the first time, I really I, I heard it. But for the first time, I was 20 sitting in church, and I said, I am lost. I'm lost. And my life was a mess from April to October. That's how long I resisted. Every Sunday, grabbing pews, trying to, trying to get out of going to church, but I kept going back. Isn't that funny? I ain't going back to church. Get up and get ready. I'm going to church. I ain't going to church. I'm going to church. Every time the invitation was given, I was a mess. Every Sunday dinner after that, it was a mess for me. I tried to run from it, 
And every time I tried to run from it, all I could think about was the gospel. That was it. God was talking to me. God was calling me. God was drawing me. That's what God was doing. And I resisted, fought against it, screamed against it, swung at it. So I was like, no, God, I, I'm not ready for this. But God was saying, you're mine. It's all over the Bible. Listen, listen to what First uh, Corinthians 1 says. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I heard the message, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and I was under conviction. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews as a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He said, man, we're preaching to people, but those that are called, it's just the most beautiful thing ever. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, he says, But I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Second Thessalonians, Paul says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach among the Gentiles. You remember that story? Paul's on the Damascus Road persecuting Christians and God probably knocks him off a horse and pretty much blinds him. And then God right there calls him. He saves him and he says, you're going to go preach to Gentiles. You're going to preach to kings. That's what you're going to do. And Paul said, yes. That's what Paul's saying. It's like, as long as I was called individually, I was called. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says, But like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Then in the second chapter, Peter says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jude, the Lord's brother, said this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and our brother James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, called. Called. I would say this, if God is dealing with your heart today, to just surrender to it. Called, convicted, caused to see. I remember a, a pastor friend sharing this word about conviction. He said that when he was like a teenager, he liked to go hunting. And it was in the wintertime, and he said, oftentimes he didn't dress appropriately, and he'd get really cold out there. And he said one morning, it was dark, of course. He said it was really cold. And he said there was an old tree out in the woods where he had. It had this big, big hole in it. And he said, I can just sit in there. Always usually had leaves in there. And he said, I just was sitting in there one morning real early. And I said, this is the only way I can get warm. So he's just sitting in this big pile of leaves in this tree, right? But he said, as the dawn began to break, he could see inside that tree a little more, a little more. And he said, he was looking around inside the tree and he goes, there's a snake. (laughs) And he said, I had the choice because I saw to live with a snake or to run for freedom. And I would tell you today, some of you, you're going to leave this church today by your own volition, and you're just going to keep living with snakes. But God's calling you to himself. Do not resist the Holy Spirit of God today. Surrender to it. Then the fourth thing we see here is not only that, those who be called, and we've studied this about in three different messages, you're justified, and I'm just going to briefly give you this word. It means justification is this, if you'll show the verse on the screen Michael says, whom he called, these he also justified. One of the greatest words in the Bible. 
one of the single greatest words in the Bible. It means the highest court in heaven and the most holy judge in heaven, God himself, declares you for eternity not guilty. The very first verse in chapter 8 says, There's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been declared for eternity not guilty by the highest court in the land. This is a finished transaction that is irrevocable and irreversible. Once justified, always justified. In chapter 5, we looked at the benefits of that. Chapter 5 says this, Because you're justified, and I'll go through these briefly, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Think about that. Peace with God. I'm not talking about the peace of God. It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford wrote it after terrible tragedy. He says that I have the peace of God. I'm not talking about that peace. I'm talking about you get that as well, but you have peace with God. This is not a feeling. This is a fact. We have peace with God. In John 3, 36, the Lord speaking says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God, present tense, abides on him. You don't have peace with God. Present tense abides on him. You're either under the wrath of God or you're a believer. Think about that. If you're justified, you have peace with God. You also have, as chapter 5 says, you have access to God. You, from Taylorsville, North Carolina, have access to God. There's a lot of people I don't have access to in America. I don't have access to them. You think you can just go see the president? You think you can just go see the governor? You can't. You don't have access. But you, as a believer, if you're born again, you have access because you're justified. And only because that, because you've been justified. And this access is restricted. It's only for Christians. It is permanent. God never closes that door. It is spiritual, which means you don't have to go to church to have it. You don't have to speak to a priest. You don't have to see me. You don't have to go to a prayer room. You have access to God anywhere, anytime on the planet, and it's constant. And then the Bible says in chapter 5 that you and you alone have hope in God. That means a confidence assurance that it's going to turn out all right. What is it like to live without hope? The very word hope is like turning on a light in the darkness. It's like bringing joy into a sorrowful situation. It's like introducing life into a scene of death. Hope is a word that immediately brightens, lifts, produces joy. Life without hope is bleak. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, when Paul's talking about the resurrection, says this, If in this life only you have hope, you are of all men most miserable. What shall it profit a man he gains the whole world, yet loses his own soul? Is this life the best you're ever going to have? Isn't that sad? Those who have been justified by faith have hope, and they have hope in God. And then the final thing is this, and we'll close, is you will be, or literally you are, it's a, it's a completed action, you are glorified, which means this, there is going to come a day for you after God comes back that you'll have a new body that will be sinless, you'll live on a planet that is sinless, and you're going to be just like Jesus your body, this world, will not sin. Notice, notice this verse in Hebrews. I want to talk to you as we close about rejecting the gospel. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded unclean the blood of the covenant 
by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. What this basically is talking about is God in his sovereignty is offering salvation to you, but basically what you do is trample underfoot Jesus and his blood, which is the new covenant, and you insult the spirit of grace. That's what I did for many, many months. From April to October, listen to what one pastor said, the the severest degree of punishment will be upon those who trampled underfoot the Son of God in regard and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. In other words, treated his sacrifice on the cross, ratifying the new covenant, providing salvation, treating it with disdain, trampling it, seeing it as unclean, that will bring about the most hottest hell or the hottest hell. And then, more importantly, they insulted the spirit of grace. He goes on to say this. Jesus said, the spirit, the Holy Spirit will point to me. He will direct you to me. He will bring my words to your remembrance. He will glorify me. So when you reject Christ, you commit an insult against the Holy Spirit. You're insulting the Holy Spirit by treating lightly and demeaning the fact that he is pointing to his glorious work, the glorious work of Christ. What does it mean to insult the Spirit of grace? Look at the word insult. It comes from the Greek word, if you'll see it on the screen, which comes from the root word, if you take the E-N-U off of it, where we get the word hubris. It's where we get the word hubris, which means audacity. It means insolent. Hubris means to treat with contempt, to have an attitude of animosity. In fact, the Greek word, you can look in the lexicon, will tell you that this word hubris is to outrage, to insult. The hottest hell is going to be for people who insulted the Holy Spirit. But this is not that word. This is even intensified. Look at the, look at the, the preposition at the front of the Greek verb. You get an intensification of the word. So in hubris is to violently insult. You want to violently insult the Holy Spirit, yet anybody who rejects Jesus Christ, rejecting the knowledge of the gospel, and turning his or her back on Jesus has committed a violent act of outrageous audacity in insolence against the Holy Spirit. And I would tell you this today, do not resist the Holy Spirit. Say yes to Jesus. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Aren't you thankful? So I ask you this question today. Are you saved? Are you sure? Are you ready to stand before God on Judgment Day? If not, I would encourage you today, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't resist God's calling in your life. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Him. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, we'll close in prayer. Father, as we come to you in prayer, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we want to thank you that you love us. Father, that your plan for our life is to be more like Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that when we were spiritually lost, spiritually, but also, Lord, we were just lost, that you came and you called us and you found us and you brought us home. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we, as your children, not because of ourselves, but because of the blood and the resurrection of Jesus, are justified for eternity. And Father, we thank you that this life is the worst it will ever be. That, Lord, one day we will reign with you in heaven on this planet and will be glorified forever. Father, I'm reminded that every one of these words we looked at today started with the word he, you, you did it. And Father, I thank you for that and I praise you for that. And Lord, this should bring about the most intense worship in my life. And Father, whatever you ask me to do, Father, in advance, my answer should be yes. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Father, we love you today, we praise you today, and we thank you for this opportunity to worship today. In Jesus' name I pray, and once again, all of God's people said together.
Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. Just a couple things I want to mention. October the 11th, we're going to try to start back Sunday school. That's our plan. What we're going to tell you is this. We're going to, we're going to do Sunday school as normal. Okay, if it doesn't work out, we'll just do a phone tree and say we're not doing Sunday school the next week. That's just how it has to go. Uh, 